All right, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to continue to walk through this letter that was written by the Apostle Paul to encourage the church to be united. And so he began this letter with a worship song celebrating that in Christ, God is uniting all things, both in heaven and on earth. And then from there, he goes on to pray for the church that we would have this spirit of wisdom and revelation that, that our spiritual eyes would open so that we would know deep down the hope that we have in our calling and the glory of being God's inheritance in Christ and that we would know the immeasurable power that we have in Christ to be who God has called us to be. And so last week we started chapter 2 which contains two paragraphs that are very similar. In fact, you're going to see the same outline as last week, this week. Both, both outlines are like this. We start off with talking about, and Paul's going to talk about, who we were before Christ. And secondly, what the problem was. And then he's going to talk about the but God moment, that moment where God intervenes on our behalf. And then we're going to end with, okay, this is who we are now, in Christ. And so once again, we're going we're gonna to be walking through that same outline. Last week, the paragraph was from a perspective of like a cosmic perspective. And so we learned that we were dead in our sins. We were deceived by the dark spiritual powers. But God, because of his mercy and his love, made us alive and raised us up in Christ to be exalted with him. So by grace, we were saved through faith, and by grace we now live to spread God's goodness and blessing, which is what we were always designed to be. We were designed to be his representatives, to spread his glory. So this week, then, we're going to answer those same four questions, but we're going to do it from a different perspective. Paul's going to look at it from a covenantal perspective or a relational perspective. And so I'm going to pray one more time, and we'll dive in. Father, once again, we, we plead with you to open up our spiritual eyes. I, I pray that we would see your love and your mercy and your grace, and we would see just how far you've brought us in Christ and what you've caused us to be in Christ, and that that would sustain us and that would give us hope and that would help us to live in light of what you've made us to be. I pray that our hope would rest fully in you. And you would be glorified. Help me speak clearly. And help me speak truth. Your truth, not mine. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we pick up in verse 11 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, 
who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. All right, so we're going to start with who we were. And Paul says that, look, you were Gentiles in the flesh. And again, if you remember the context of what's going on here in Ephesians, you, Paul is trying to do basically like bringing Louisville fans and Kentucky fans together to be at peace with one another, right? But it's even worse than that. Is it these, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and the Jews, to bring them together, these two different cultures, these two different people, in Christ, you're one. Okay, that's the heart of this whole letter. And so he's looking at the Gentiles, those believers that had come to know Christ, that were not raised as an Israelite. He says, look, you are Gentiles in the flesh. And so the word Gentile here is the Greek word ethnos, which we get our English word ethnic from. And it means nation or people. But the Jews, the Jews would often use this same word to refer to outsiders. And sometimes it's even translated like heathens or uh, pagans. But even an even more derogatory term that the Jews used to describe the Gentiles was the uncircumcised. Uh, perhaps you recall David when he was about to fight Goliath. And he looks over at the Philistine army and he, and he almost mocks them. Like, who, who are these uncircumcised Philistines to challenge the, the living God, right? Well, circumcision was a big deal. It was the sign of the covenant given to Abraham, and it was a symbol of God's commitment to the Israelites. So to be uncircumcised was to be outside the covenant community, outside God's chosen people, outside the promises and the blessing of God. And so we come to the New Testament, something changed with Jesus, though. And so we look in Acts chapter 15, and you can, you can read about how the early church debated whether or not these Gentile believers needed to be circumcised to be saved. And it was decided that it wasn't necessary to put that burden on the Gentiles because they had seen evidence of the Holy Spirit working in these uncircumcised Gentiles. And so they decided that, the circ that circumcision was no longer a sign of the new covenant, this covenant relationship between God and his people. Now, evidently, there were some Jews who disagreed with that decision, and they would continue to stir up trouble within the church, claiming that Gentiles who had come to believe in Christ, that they had to first follow the Jewish customs and the laws to be Christian. And Paul 
went to great lengths in many of his letters disputing that and, and emphasizing that, look, circumcision is not necessary for the Gentiles in the New Covenant. And so here in Ephesians, Paul is just emphasizing that to a circumcised Jew, you Gentiles are outsiders, or were outsiders. You were a people who did not belong in God's family. And, and that's a problem, right? So this goes to our second point. That, that, what's the problem? Look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so what's the problem? You were separated from Christ. You were separated from the Messiah. You were separated from the one who can save you from the evil spiritual darkness, separated from the one who has the power to redeem you and cleanse you and forgive your sins. But not only that, you were alienated from Israel, alienated from God's chosen people, strangers to the covenants of the promise. So no relationship with God. No inheritance, no promised land, no paradise, no adoption, no blessing, no hope. He goes on to say, without God in the world, without his presence, without his light, without his truth, without, without his love, without his power or provision. Later on in Ephesians, Paul would say about the Gentiles that, look, or he would say to the Gentiles, actually, you were darkness. Not you were in darkness, but you were darkness. That's, that's your, I, that was your identity. You were completely absent of light. You were blinded to the truths of the gospel. He says that they, they walked in the futility of their minds, that they were darkened in their understanding, callous towards sin, ignorance due to the hardness of their hearts. Which, if you think about it, that's the same language that was described in the Old Testament to, to describe them, Pharaoh. So Paul's saying, like, you're like Pharaoh. So why does Paul spend so much time talking about the depravity of the Gentiles? Which is us, by the way, right? <laughs> this is us. Well, perhaps it's so we can fully understand the significance of the but God moments. The significance of God interceding on our behalf. We need to understand just how desperate we truly were before God intervened. And understand, like Paul is writing to believers in this letter, right? He's writing to believers because we need to be reminded as believers. And we need to be humbled at, at times. And this is humbling to be reminded of this. And not only that, we need to be reminded of the but God moments too. And the significance of the but God moments because there's times where we feel, even as Christians, far from God, and far from one another. You know, we need to be reminded, but then, in Christ, right? Verse 13, but now, in Christ, Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Even if you don't feel like it, that doesn't change the truth and the reality, Right? And so that's why we need it. We easily forget this. And so we need to be reminded of it. We need to be reminded that, but now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Because, because you've trusted in Christ, 
You who were alienated, you who were separated, you who were without hope, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. His sacrifice is what cleanses us and redeems us. Verse 14, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Okay, so we see here that Christ is the unifying factor. In Christ, he has made us, who's that? Both the Jews and the Gentiles, one. You see in Paul's letters often, he repeats this. There is now no Jew, or no Jew, no Greek, no circumcision or uncircumcision, but we're all one in Christ. And so he says the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. All right, what is Paul talking about there? So some have actually taken that very, very literally, and they're, they, they, they look at the, the low wall that's around the temple that separates the, the outer court of the, the un, what was called the unclean court, where the Gentiles were allowed to come and, and worship. Uh, and there's a small wall, low wall, that separated that from the, the, the next court in where the Israelites could walk in. And, and archaeologists have actually unearthed signs that were on this wall uh, that separated the Gentiles from the Israelites. And this is what the sign says. It says, no foreigner is to enter within the four courts in the balustrade, that's the word we don't use very often, around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. So uh, I'm sure they felt welcomed, right? <laughs> but that was the sign between the two courts. And that's what kept the, the Gentiles out of, of the temple. And uh, the problem with this theory, though, is that when Paul wrote this letter, the temple was still there. It hadn't been torn down. And I don't know that it makes a whole lot of sense that Paul had that wall in mind when he wrote this letter because it had not yet been broken down. And on top of that, the Greek word that Paul uses for dividing the wall is a different word than what was commonly used to describe this wall. But I think the next verse actually gives us a clue to what Paul meant. Look, look at verse 15. So how did Christ knock down this wall of his hostility? Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So it appears that the dividing wall Paul is talking about is the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, this is a challenging passage to understand because, I mean, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So is Paul contradicting Jesus? I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think it's important to note that the word you see here in Ephesians that's translated as abolish, it's not the same Greek word that's used in Matthew 5 when Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law. Okay, It's a, it's a different word. He translates both words into abolish. The Greek word translated abolish in Matthew 5 literally means to destroy or throw down or demolish. But the Greek word translated abolish in Ephesians 2, where we're at here, it can mean abolish, but it can also mean to set aside, or to make powerless. So I think in this situation, context is key. So on the Sermon 
in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking to primarily Jews who had heard from probably the Pharisees that Jesus was a lawbreaker. And so Jesus is correcting some of the lies that they had been fed. Paul, here in Ephesians, is talking to a mix of, of Gentiles and Jews, trying to encourage them to be united in Christ. And so Paul here in Ephesians is saying, look, Jesus removed the barrier that the law had created between the Jews and the Gentiles. All right, so this brings up two questions, though. So, one, how did the law create this barrier of hostility between the Jews and the Gentiles? And then secondly, how did Jesus deal with it? All right, so Paul, you got to understand, he had a very complex view of the law, okay? <laughs> kind of a love-hate relationship. So when I'm talking about the law, the Old Testament is filled with about a little bit over 600 laws, okay? The first five books of the Bible, which is called the Torah, is also often referred to as the Law of Moses, which is kind of misleading in my mind because, yeah, there's a bunch of laws in it, but it's a story. It's actually a story. And ironically, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, is a story about how humanity and even God's chosen people are unable to keep God's law. Over and over, you see this pattern. God gives the law, humans break the law. God gives the law, humans break the law. And so Paul had, like I said, had this love-hate relationship with law. And he explains it more in detail in Romans chapter 7, where he says, look, the law is good, and it is right, and it is holy, and yet... Because of our fallen nature, the law entices us to sin. I think a lot of us could probably relate to that, especially like when you're a kid and your mom says, don't eat a cookie. What's the first thing you want to do? <laughs> you want to eat that cookie. It brings up these desires. You want to do what you're not supposed to do. And so, and so uh, Paul in Romans 7 says, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And, and so the law, which was given to the Israelites to help them know how to live as God's chosen people, a nation of priests that were to represent him, it becomes a barrier, and it stirs up hostility between Israel and these other nations because the Israelites, what, the, what happened is this law became a source of pride to them. And, and Jesus would call them out on this often in the gospel. So on several occasions, he looks at the Pharisees and, and calls them out for their pride because they were looking down on others because they were following what they deemed was the law, and these other people were not. So the Jewish rabbis actually created extra laws, numerous extra laws that describe, that they, and they even described it as a fence or a hedge of protection for the Jews so that they did not sin. And then on top of that, there were these oral traditions. And Jesus called the, the Pharisees out about those too. But all of these extra laws and these oral traditions became a burden for the Jews. And I can imagine that a Gentile looking in on the situation is like, why would I ever want to buy into what they're doing? And, and why would I ever want to take on the burden of having to follow all of these commands? And they, they had tons of, I mean, the Sabbath alone, they had 40 categories of different things you could not do on the Sabbath, like write <laughs> or, or carry something that was too heavy. I mean, there's all sorts of different commands. And so Jesus comes, and he begins to teach the, the, the heart of the law. You see it in the Sermon on the Mount where he's, he says over and over, you've heard it said, but I tell you, and he would, like, for example, you've heard it said, don't murder, but I tell you, if you're angry at, at your brother, you've already committed a sin. And so Jesus was teaching them 
that following the law wasn't simply about an outward behavior. It was about an inner attitude. It was about your heart. God wants your heart. In fact, Jesus was asked, what is the most important commandment? He gave two commands. He said, love the Lord your God with all of your what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so you look through the whole Old Testament, it shows that humanity has this inability to keep these commandments, and even God's chosen people couldn't keep them. And so at the end of the Torah, God says to Moses that these people that I've chosen, they're going to continue to rebel. In fact, they're going to end up in exile. What they need is they need a, they need a new heart. They need a circumcised heart. And then he promises Moses, one day I'm going to give it to him. And then the, the prophets would reiterate that. They, they would continue in that promise. They would continue, even while the, the Israelites were in exile because of continuous rebellion, Ezekiel says this, he says, and I will give you a new heart. This is God. I will give you a new heart, a new spirit. I will, I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so you fast forward to the New Testament, and you fast forward to, to Jesus. And what does he do? Well, first, he kills the hostility between us and God by becoming the ultimate sacrifice for us so that our sins are forgiven. And so his sacrifice, then what does it do? It, clear, it cleanses us and clears the way for the Holy Spirit to indwell us. And so, like God promises, we receive a new spirit. His spirit, which begins to change our hearts and soften our hearts, and our pride begins to melt, and we begin to grow in our love for God and our love for other people. And on top of that, Jesus sends, uh, on top of Jesus sending his Holy Spirit to change our hearts, his sacrifice ended the necessity, the whole Old Testament sacrificial system and all the laws that surrounded it. And so the temple was no longer even necessary because now we are the temple, the dwelling place of God. And so outward circumcision was no longer necessary because God was circumcising our hearts. And so the amazing news that Paul is celebrating in this letter is that God is now drawing in all nations, all Gentiles, to be his family, to be his dwelling place. So instead of this hostile barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles, now we're one. Now we're a new humanity brought near by the blood of Christ, reconciled to God and to one another. And so he says, Jesus is our peace. And he preached peace to those who were far off and to those who were near. So now both Jews and Gentiles have access through the Spirit to the Father. And so with all of this in mind, let's take a look at who we are now in Christ. Look at verse 19. So then you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Notice how God is reversing all of the problems that were at the beginning of the paragraph. We are now all citizens of the same heavenly kingdom. We're all saints. We're all members of God's household, God's family. We're, we're brothers and we're sisters in Christ. And then Paul uses this metaphor of us becoming the temple together. 
Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So the, the apostles and prophets, they were the first ones who do, that proclaimed the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so they laid this foundation of truth for us to be able to rest on in Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, the, the rock that holds all of us in place, the rock in which every other stone rests upon and finds its security. And we are joined together, notice, to grow. So God designed us to, to grow and mature together in community. And we're growing into a holy temple in the Lord, the place where God's presence dwells. And is manifested. I think verse 22, the very last verse of this, this uh, chapter, I think this is Paul like turning his face to the Gentiles in this letter, looking them straight in the eye and once again affirming the good news that they now, that you now, that I now belong. He says, In him, y'all also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. This is the basic message of Jesus, right? Uh, probably very little new that I, I taught you this morning, but you know what? This is the stuff we need to hear all the time. And this is my prayer for us, that these truths would just completely saturate our hearts and our minds and our conversations. So that when we, when, not if, but when we feel far off from God and far from one another, we would be reminded that in Christ, we are one. Together, we are part of God's new humanity fellow citizens of his kingdom, members of his body. We have this rock-solid foundation of the truth of God's word. We have him, Christ Jesus, our Savior and Lord, as our cornerstone that we can rest on and trust in. And so we come together as the very temple of God, where God's presence is manifested and enjoyed. We come together to be a place where we and, and others and outsiders can come and experience God's love and God's grace and God's compassion and his forgiveness and his faithfulness. But we also look forward to the day where it's not just a taste we're getting anymore. We look forward to the day when we will look around and we'll be at the throne of God and every tongue and every tribe and every nation will be together and there'll be no more divisions but we will all with one voice raise our raise a celebration to to Jesus and we will sing in Christ alone right you know the can you put up the next slide or uh, does it talk about in Christ alone put up the song that we're going to be singing in Christ alone and just look at these these verses. One day we'll get to be around the throne 
and send us together. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my life, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, what fears are stilled when striving cease. Imagine that day, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. That's what we have to look forward to. That's what I want to pray for right now. Father, oh, it is so good to be reminded of just the, the basics of our faith. Who we were before Christ, alienated from your people, separated from Christ, darkened, ignorant, foolish. But God, because of your mercy, because of your love, because of your grace, has made us alive in Christ, us who were far off from you. You have brought us near to you through the blood of Jesus. And now we enjoy being one, being together. We enjoy being your family. We enjoy being a citizen of your kingdom. And we look forward to the day where we will fully experience that. And we will see you face to face. In Jesus' name. Amen.